0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. In this episode we meet David Hume, Scottish essayist, philosopher and historian. Born in 1711, Hume brings us into the 18th century when the project to develop a science of politics was gaining great momentum. It was to this project that David Hume made a contribution in his Treaties of Human Nature, a demanding work of philosophy. The first two books were published in 1739 And a third in 1740. Alas, the book found no success, and Hume wrote that it fell dead-born from the press. After this failure, Hume reinvented himself as an essayist, publishing a collection of essays in 1741 under the title Essays Moral and Political. More volumes soon followed, most notably the 1752 collection titled Political Discourses, our focus in this episode. It was enormously successful. The change in genre had proved wise, and Hume's name was made. Hume's topics included many of those that we would now think of as belonging to economics, including commerce, luxury, money, the balance of trade, taxes, and public credit. Yet Hume approached them as belonging to the science of politics, without even a hint that political economy was an independent field of study. No doubt this relates to Hume's view that trade was a matter of state. Professor Richard Watmore. From the University of St Andrews.
1: Obviously, what Hume says famously is that commerce has become a reason of state. And what he means by that is that all contemporary states, if they want to maintain themselves, have to seek to develop their commerce. And he says famously again that the... Previous generations, early moderns, ancients, he mentions uh, Xenophon, Uh, he mentions Machiavelli, and he says they were not so interested in trade. Trade was not a central concern of their politics.
0: Thus Machiavelli, and all of those who followed in his footsteps, were simply inadequate guides to the modern age. Whatever the usefulness of such advice for a prince attempting to maintain control of their territory in the 16th century... In Hume's time, more was required than skill in managing political and personal enemies. Modern politics required that the statesman was also skilled in managing trade. Hume's essay of Commerce provided the necessary guidance. He noted the common idea that the power of the state increased with the wealth of private individuals. The implication was that no conflict existed between the goals of state strength and public happiness. Hume set himself the task of scrutinizing this claim, and his central move was to divide the bulk of a state's population into just two classes, husbandmen, or farmers, and manufacturers. A truly wealthy state was identified with the extent to which an agricultural surplus could support the manufacture of luxuries. That is, a rich state would have developed technology that allowed it to raise its food supply without needing to use the entirety of its labour force. Of course, the other way to employ those workers not needed in agriculture was to conscript them into the state's army and navy. On this view, there was a clash between the goals of state strength and the wealth of citizens. Hume dissolved this apparent paradox by explaining how it was the role of manufacturers to provide commodities that could be exchanged for food. This prospect represented an incentive to constantly improve the arts of agriculture, and advances in these arts were the source of the agricultural surplus that made commerce possible. In short, the existence of a manufacturing sector increased the power of the state by acting as a store of labour that could be conscripted into the army without depriving the population of its food supply. Wealth and power were joined at the hip. It was exactly this fact, however, that led Hume to worry about the future of Europe, as states such as Britain and France competed for trade and
1: power. He certainly becomes more pessimistic about international relations. In other words, the tendency of commercial states to fight one another for one another's markets. That's what the jealousy of trade is. It's really you want to capture the markets of your competitive competitor states. And one of the ways to do it is obviously by expanding your own empire. Hume's fully aware that he's living in an age where the powerful commercial states, Britain and France especially, are extending their dominions and they are doing so in part because of the logic of commerce which says you need larger markets.
0: The logic of trade and progress was being corrupted by the logic of power. If modern politics were new because trade had become a matter of state, then it was also the case that the modern period brought with it new problems. The most spectacular of these new problems was public debt. Britain's history had seen intense conflict over taxation With Parliament insisting that its sanction was needed for any increase in taxes. Public debt, by contrast, allowed the state to borrow from private citizens. In this way, the leading restraint on the ambition of politicians had been thrown off. Hume expressed exasperation that his fellow Britons did not seem to heed the danger, for they simply assumed that sooner or later a minister would arrive who was capable of retrenching the debt. Hume did not share in this optimism, but feared that having unshackled the ambitions of ministers, and creating a national debt led to a dynamic that produced a stark choice. Either the nation must destroy public credit, or public credit will destroy the nation. We know from hindsight that Britain survived the challenge that Hume perceived, although it is equally clear that fear of public debt continues to alarm the sharpest of political observers. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought. Written and spoken by me, Dr. Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Professor Richard Watmore. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyibi.